I'd like to welcome you to church this morning on this fourth Sunday of Easter. Please stand and join us as we sing our praises to God together. Truth and justice. 
You are worthy, O Lord, to receive honor and glory. You are worthy to receive honor and praise and more than we could possibly give you because you've created all things. And by your will, all things have been created. We give you thanks for this day, for the chance to wake up, for the heart beating within us, for the, our lungs taking in air. We give you thanks for reports of uh, good news this weekend. From uh, we, While we continue to pray for the people of Nepal, we thank you that uh, Houghton alum Matt Crookshank, who is there in a medical mission strip, uh, is reported safe. We thank you for the provision that they're there, may be able to help. We thank you for their uh, protection over that group. And pray your protection and your presence in this place during this time. In the power of Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to invite the ushers forward to assist us as we give back to God. This is risen from the dead. 
it's in the power and the grace of the risen Christ that uh, we gather today and that we offer our prayers. As we pray together, if you'd like to come and use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please join me. Holy Father, we come today in gratitude, thanksgiving, praise, and worship that Christ is indeed risen from the dead. And in his life, we have life. Because Christ is risen, our prayers mean something. And we believe that you are at work in the world in ways that we couldn't dream or imagine. And so we come and offer our prayers in the spirit of thanksgiving and in faith. We pray this morning for our world, a world of great pain and heartache and struggle. We think this morning of the devastation of the earthquakes in Nepal. Our hearts go out to, to people who are grieving hundreds and hundreds of deaths and injuries and uncertainty about the future. Father, we pray that even in a country where being a Christian is difficult, we pray that your people, your church, would be a presence of hope and a presence of grace and help in the midst of pain and heartache. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who struggle to live out their faith in the midst of persecution and opposition and We think of those who are recovering from the recent attack on the Garissa University College. Lord, we grieve with them. It's hard to imagine the kinds of things that people had to witness. We pray that you will bring healing in every way to the survivors, to your church. And may there be a witness out of this that will change the landscape of the opposition of witness. Father, we continue to pray for your work, the work of your church in Liberia, and especially uh, with the Elwa radio ministry. Thank you that the Ebola crisis seems to be under control there. And as work begins to uh, start up again, we ask for your grace upon the building and upon the all the things that need to happen so the radio station can operate at full capacity and share the gospel in greater ways. And we ask that the effect of this good news and the sharing of the good news of Christ will be more powerful and amazing than we could dream or imagine. And Father, we pray for the needs that we represent here. We pray for all who are grieving here. We ask for your comforting presence upon them. We pray for all who are struggling with issues of health. And we pray today for Derek Mastin and Beulah Avery, Jill Tyson, Bruce Brenneman, Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Tim Nichols, Isla Shea, Edna Howard, Crystal Blake, Emily Crickler, 
and others who may be on our minds today. Father, we pray that as we are drawing close to the end of this school year, that you will help people who are needing to complete projects and study for exams to be able to do that with great fruitfulness. We pray for faculty as they prepare and grade exams and papers. We pray for staff who are busy preparing for commencement and all the regular activities as well. And we simply ask that your grace would be upon each person who is involved in the educational process. And Father, we pray for each of us as we go about our days. Whatever our work may be, whatever our responsibilities may be, whatever our family circumstances may be, we ask for your grace in our lives. That we might know you and serve you. and Be filled with your Spirit's grace. Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers. We offer them in the name and power of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our risen King, our returning Lord, and the one from whom we learn the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. Unless I see the scars of the nails in his hands, and put my finger on those scars, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were together again indoors, and Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. Put your finger here and look at my hands. Then reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop your doubting and believe. My Lord and my God. Do you believe? Because you see me. How happy are those who believe without seeing me. In his disciples' presence, Jesus performed many other miracles which are not written down in this book. But these have been written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God.
and that through your faith in him, you may have life. As we gather for worship today, we have, uh, there's things in your bulletin that I want to highlight. There's an insert about children's church. I know that um, some of you may not be around this summer, but if you are, we'd appreciate your help with children's church. It's a great way to connect with our little ones and to uh, help them understand Jesus and the love of Christ. If you can help, that would be greatly appreciated. You can fill out this form and hand, just drop it off in the back as you leave or hand it to one of the pastors or an usher. Uh, also, we are uh, practicing again this year, as we've done a number of years, we're going to have uh, 36 hours of prayer for our graduates, high school and college graduates. And uh, we begin Tuesday, 6 a.m. It ends Wednesday, 6 p.m. We'd love to fill up those 36 hours as a means of supporting our graduates, praying for them as they are in this time of transition. Uh, we have the names of every graduate, high school and college. We also will have, we have some prayer guides that you can use if you want. But uh, let, let's fill up those hours. You can sign up this morning as you leave, right in the back or anytime online. And uh, that'll be Tuesday, 6 a.m. to Wednesday, 6 p.m. And we'd love to have you be a part of uh, this prayer gathering. Let's take a minute and uh, share a word of greeting with each other as uh, we uh, continue in worship this morning. You know, in some ways, to, um, to doubt is to be human. We, we start doubting at a very young age. I mean, what's, what's the most common question you hear from a child? Why? I, we are um, somewhere in the neighborhood of about a month or so away from becoming first-time grandparents. I'm pretty excited about that. I can't wait to, for our little granddaughter to say, why, Grandpa, why? Now, I'm sure it's going to get old after a while, but right now it looks pretty exciting to think about. But it's what children do. It's how we learn, right? I mean, part of the whole educational process is asking questions and, and saying, I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I get that. that. Doubting is one of the ways, a significant way in which we learn and we begin to understand how the world works and why things are the way they are. And instead of seeing doubt as purely negative, maybe we need to think about it a little bit differently. Now, in the story that we've just seen dramatized here from John chapter 20, Jesus, it's, it's a week after Easter. On that Easter morning, uh, Mary gets up and some women, goes to the tomb. The stone's been rolled away. She, you know, freaks out, runs back to John and Peter. They come to the tomb, look in. 
Jesus is gone. The grave clothes are there. They go back wondering what has happened. That night, Jesus appears to them. Thomas, for some reason, is not there. When he comes back, they say, we saw Jesus. And Thomas says, right. Sure. I don't believe it. Unless I see hand, unless I see the nail prints in his hands, spear scar in his side, I don't believe it. So a week goes by. I love to have been figured out those conversations, heard those conversations from that week. The next week, and John paints the exact same scene. They're in the room, doors locked, they're hiding. They're they're afraid. They've seen Jesus, but they're still afraid. And this time, Thomas is there and Jesus appears again. And when Thomas sees him, he responds in faith. Now, what's interesting to me is that we we read this story and we have tended, history has tended to be pretty rough on Thomas. We even called him Doubting Thomas. You know, you say to somebody, you know, oh, come on, don't be a Doubting Thomas. Well, the reality is that the other disciples don't doubt because they don't have a chance to doubt. They don't have a week to wait. They they weren't told we, we saw Jesus. They saw Jesus. And the minute Thomas sees Jesus, he responds exactly the same way they do when they see Jesus. I'm not sure it's fair to Thomas to put him into that category. I think they all doubt I mean, after all, the disciples, it's been a week, and they're still locked up in the room, afraid. And they've seen Jesus. And you get a, you get a much more ecstatic response, enthusiastic response from Thomas when he sees Jesus than what John paints when the rest of the disciples do. But whatever the case, as they wrestle with their doubts, when Thomas sees Jesus... I, I have imagined, a little different than the image in the video, I, I think Thomas falls on the floor and wraps his arms around his legs like I envision Mary did. And he says, my Lord and my God. It's the first time anyone calls Jesus God. And Thomas is saying, Jesus, I didn't get it, but I'm starting to see it and I'm all in. It's all about you. Thomas may have been late getting to the party, but now that he's there, he is totally engaged. He is all about Jesus. Whatever Jesus wants, Jesus gets. Whatever Jesus says, he's there. He is fully engaged in worshiping Jesus and following Jesus. It is all about Jesus. His declaration just reveals his heart for Jesus. And I think Jesus is thrilled when anyone exhibits that kind of faith. When any of us encounter Jesus and respond with faith and trust, Jesus is thrilled. But Jesus says to Thomas, it's awesome that you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and believe. There's a lot of speculation about what exactly Jesus means by that. I mean, does he mean we ought to believe without any worry about any kind of evidence? That apologetics are unnecessary. 
that the really spiritual people don't need visions of Jesus. The really spiritual people don't need to to have an encounter with Jesus. We just believe. I don't think that's what he means. I don't think he's saying there are two classes of Christians. Those who see Jesus and those who don't. And the ones who don't see Jesus are a lot better Christians than the other people. But I do think he is speaking, saying something to us about a willingness, about a faith, a trust that says, I believe Jesus even when I don't see the evidence of Jesus that I want. I believe that Jesus, the risen Christ, is at work in this world even though sometimes it seems as though there is no evidence of Jesus anywhere. When I think about the things going on in the world and the the things that the enemies of the church are doing to the church, I want to step back and say, Jesus, are you there? And throughout the history of God's people, that has been the cry. God, are you there? Jesus, do you see and, and those moments, and we think about that with our own lives too, when things in our own lives don't go the way we wish they would, we're asking Jesus, are you there? And doubt creeps in to our minds. And doubt creeps into our hearts and our spirits. And it's in those very moments that Jesus is saying, trust me. Trust me in those moments and you will experience blessing. What does he mean by blessing? What do we tend to think of? We tend to think the blessing means we get stuff. And there are preachers all over the world who will tell you that's what it means. Being blessed by God means that you have wealth. It means you have power. It means you have influence. It means all the things that... that the culture and society says are valuable, you get those if you're blessed by God. But when you read the scriptures, that's not the image you get of blessing. In fact, when you get to the end of this chapter, at the end of this chapter, John says, the reason I've written this letter, the reason I've written this gospel, the reason I've I've told you the stories that I've told you, is so that you will believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And in believing in him, you will have life. If you really want to know what it means to live, then trust Jesus because he is the source of all life. And it's not just eternal life, though that's a part of it. It's life now. It's engaging ourselves in new life now. It's being transformed and and changed and made new and set free. All of the, the things in the deepest longings of our souls. That in those moments when we are all by ourselves and, and, and we wish life could be what we deep inside want it to be. It's in those moments that Jesus says, I can do that for you. I can be that for you. I can fill you with life. I can change you. I can transform you. If you trust me. 
I'm convinced that the blessing part of this, though, isn't just being changed and, and, and experiencing life. I think it's, it takes it even one step further. It's not, just, it's not just having it happen to us, but it's knowing that it's happened to us. And there is a difference. Sometimes things happen and, and we, you know, we, we experience it, but we don't really understand the full impact of it. And I think that, that when he talks about the life of Christ in us, it's not just that we are transformed, but it's that we know we're transformed. We begin to realize what John says in his, in his epistle, that we are children of God. We're children of God. John Wesley said that one of the hinge points of his whole theological system was the witness of the Spirit. He talked about the fact that if you're going to to be changed, you're going to be transformed, you're going to be made new, then you need to know that. And the witness of the Spirit is telling us over and over again, you're a new creation. You're a child of God. God loves you. You're not the same person you used to be. Yes, you still have struggles. Yes, we all are wrestling with, with sin and difficulties. And we all have a long way to go on our journey. But in the midst of the journey, we are new people. And we can know that. I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago about the rural Presbyterian church in the northeastern part of India. And, and this is a church that, that ministers to and actually is run by uh, Dalit people. Or the untouchables of the Hindu caste system. And even though the the caste system is technically illegal in the great nation of India. By and large it's been such a part of the culture that people still practice it. And this church is ministering to these people that nobody else wants. These untouchables that live on the fringes at best of culture and society. One of the laws in India says that if you have a child, if you're an untouchable and you have a child, you have to name that child something, some kind of name that means something derogatory or demeaning. So you have to name your child something that means dumb or ugly or valueless, unimportant, insignificant. What this church does is when people come to faith, when people open their hearts to Jesus, they bring them, stand them up front, and they give them a new name. They give them a new name, like beautiful, loved, valuable, important. Because they want them not just to, to have experienced Christ, they want them to know they've experienced Christ. I want them to realize that they are different and God is at work in them and he's changing them and they are not the same people. They are new creatures and the blessing of God is on their lives. They have life in his name. And Jesus says, if you have faith, that's what you get. But it comes back to having the kind of faith, Jesus says, that doesn't have to have all the answers. It's the kind of faith that that can believe and trust even when we don't see Christ the way we want him to. 
And that's hard on us. At some point, having faith in Christ means that we let Christ be who he says he is. And he says he's the savior of the world, who's gone to the cross, who has risen from the dead, and we let him be who he says he is, instead of what we tend to do is to create and shape Christ in the image of who we want him to be. And unfortunately, too often, the Christ we worship looks more like us than like him. Because when we let him be who he says he is, then he's unmanageable and he's uncontrollable. And, and he doesn't do things the way we want him to do them. And what does it do? It forces us to trust that much more. For years, Calvin Miller was pastor of, of, a, of Westside Church in Omaha and uh, grew it to a, a large church. And then he went and taught at a couple seminaries and he died a couple of years ago. But I've always been an admirer of him. I've read lots of things he's written, listened to some of his sermons. And, and he tells about 1947, being about 10 years old, and he had this crisis of faith. And in, in this crisis of faith, had two things sort of came together in a moment. The first was that summer, he, and his, he went to actually grew up in a little Wesleyan Methodist church. And he went to vacation Bible school. And in the vacation Bible school, they sang songs, sang choruses and, and hymns, and they made little flannel graph Jesus. Now, I suspect a lot of you are like flannel graph. I have no idea what that is. The rest of us who are older, we get flannel graph. We grew up on flannel graph. We have these little pieces of cardboard with like scenes of nature on them. And you have these little people made out of felt-like stuff. And they stick to it. And you have Jesus and disciples and little sheep and, you know, all these things. And that's how we told our Bible stories when I was a child with flannel graph. And that was pretty high-tech stuff, to be honest with you. I know it's hard to believe, but, you know, it was better than chalk drawings. Like, you know, I mean, uh, stick figures that we made. So he brought home this flannel graph Jesus. I mean, he had this flannel graph Jesus that he made there. The other event that took place was that his grandmother, who lived with his family, lost her mind. It's just one of the saddest things in the world he's seen. She just lost her mind. And one of the things that she did as a part of that as part of that tragic process was that she would steal things from around the house and take them to her room and put them in a trunk that she had in her room and lock it. And she would say, mine, mine, mine. And his crisis of faith came when one day he discovered that his grandmother had stolen his flannelgraph Jesus and locked Jesus in the trunk in her room. And he says, the 10-year-old, he's wondering... Who would steal Jesus and lock him in a trunk? Then I went to seminary and I met a whole lot of people who were hiding Jesus in trunks. And saying, mine, mine, mine. It's a lot safer, at least it seems safer, to put Jesus in a box, to put Jesus in a trunk, To create Jesus in the image that we want him to be instead of the risen Christ who cannot be controlled, who cannot be managed or manipulated, but who just loves and works and changes us 
And the call on us is to believe, to trust that that Jesus is far better than the Jesus we put in the trunk. The Jesus that's limited and small and looks like us. And the kind of faith that Jesus is describing here is the kind of faith that says, when Jesus doesn't do what I want him to do, I still want to trust. When the world feels like God is nowhere around and Jesus has nothing to say to it, I still want to trust. When my life feels out of control, when the next steps that I'm taking in life are hidden and uncertain, and it feels like I'm not hearing anything from Jesus, I still want to trust. And doubt is a part of that process. Jesus isn't afraid of our doubts. As long as they're honest doubts, he's not afraid of our doubts. He says there's a difference between honest doubt and dishonest declarations of faith. Honest doubts, Jesus can do something with that. I mean, look at, I mean, Thomas basically says, look, I don't believe, so why would I say that I did? I'm just, here's what I hear, that's where I am. And look at Jesus, he can do something with that. What he has a hard time doing anything with are people who say, oh yeah, I believe, I believe, I believe, but they don't really believe. And they spend their whole lives fighting against Jesus. It's, it's the difference, as, as Robert Winberg says in, in, a book, in his book, Faith at the Edge, he says, it, it's the difference between reluctant, painful doubt, and belligerent, enthusiastic doubt. It's the difference between the kind of doubt that doesn't really want to doubt but it's, it's just wrestling to, to work through the issues versus the kind of doubt that really doesn't want to believe. And it's trying to find every way possible to not believe. It's the difference between the disciples in the garden and, and, and those who come to arrest Jesus. The disciples run in fear. They don't know what to do. I think their hearts are in the right place. They want to believe. They just can't quite get there. Whereas the religious leaders who come to arrest Jesus, they know the truth. They just don't want to do it. They don't want to follow it. They don't want to believe it. And so their solution is to put it to death. There's not much God can do with that kind of mindset. But the faith that says, I'm, Lord, I, I don't understand. I'm doubting. I'm struggling. But I really want to believe. Help me. And the man who said to Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's what he's talking about. And that kind of wrestling, doubting, struggling, wanting to believe, but not quite getting there yet, is okay. It's a part of the process. It's a heart that's still sensitive to Christ. It's a heart that's open to Christ. We're just trying to get there. And sometimes things come to our lives that make it hard for us to grasp things the way he wants us to. 
It's the want to. So it's not just enough to say, I want to let Jesus be who he says he is. The real faith, real trust that Jesus is talking about wants Jesus to be who he says he is. We want Jesus to be the crucified Lord who is running loose in the world and cannot be controlled and manipulated. We don't want him to be the Jesus we put in the trunk. We're just wrestling to come to grips with it. It's the want to. And all along our journey, and for some of you, you've never, you haven't stepped into the journey yet with Christ. Maybe it's because you have questions and doubts and you're struggling. That's okay. Keep asking the questions. Keep, keep talking to people. Be honest. And for those of us who have stepped into the journey, we come across all kinds of things that make us scratch our heads and wonder, Lord, where are you? What are you doing? I don't understand. And we're wrestling to, to not to put Jesus back in the trunk because we're nervous and we're insecure. It's in that moment that trust is most vital. And that's why Jesus says we're blessed. Because in that moment, if we trust, then we are engaging ourselves with Christ. And when we engage ourselves with Christ, even a little bit more than we did before, we come to understand more of who Christ is. And we come to experience more of Christ in our lives. And when we experience more of Christ, we're filled with joy and peace and love and grace that we didn't know before. And we have life and we're blessed. And somewhere along the way, we have to come to the place where we want to believe that the way of Christ is the right way. Isn't it fascinating that when Jesus appears to the disciples and he identifies himself He doesn't identify himself by his facial features. There's something that they don't quite recognize. He doesn't identify himself by the tone of his voice. That too doesn't quite trigger them. He doesn't identify himself by doing miracles. You know, turning water into wine or bread into rocks. He identifies himself by holding up his hands and saying, look at the scars. That's how you know it's me, he says. And he's not ashamed of those scars. He doesn't run from the scars. They are the image of who he is, his love, his grace, his compassion. At some point, we have to come to realize that if we're going to be a follower of Jesus, the cross is not an aberration just for Jesus. It's a call on all of our lives to surrender. Not because we have to, but because we want to. To be vulnerable. To believe that Jesus was right. And that the way to conquer evil and sin and death is not power It's being vulnerable. It's love. It's compassion. It's truth. And if that is the way of Christ, it is the way for people who trust in Christ. And that's hard. 
And we look at this and we think, man, Jesus is asking an awful lot of us. This is a hard thing. And yet when Jesus frames this whole discussion, it's not negative, it's positive. Look, I want to bless you. This is the way it can happen. And I have too often read this story from a negative perspective, thinking Jesus is saying to Thomas, come on, Thomas, what is wrong with you? Are you so dense? Come on, believe. Come on. What are you, what's the holdup? What's going on? Man, you know, exasperated with him. Well, what if, what if that's not how Jesus speaks to him? What if Jesus says, Thomas, I know you've got it in you. It, it's just right there. I know you want to believe. Do it. And see what I can do in your life. Come on, Thomas. Come on. Trust me. Trust me. And let's walk this road together. As we come to this table, we come face to face with the Jesus, who Jesus says he is. And it calls us to want Jesus to be who he says he is. And wherever you may be on the continuum of faith, on the journey of faith, Hear Jesus' invitation to come, to believe, and to be blessed. Gracious Father, we thank you for the blessing of life that you offer to us. And we pray that you will give us grace to want you, to want Christ to be who he says he is and to want even for ourselves the way of the cross to be the way of life. We pray that you will pour out your blessing on these gifts, the bread and the cup, that as we eat and drink, we will be filled, overflowing with your spirit of love and life. And may you be glorified to change us. We ask this through Jesus. Amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, meeting with his disciples, he took bread. And he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. As you're released by Rose this morning, uh, come tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it, and then return to your seat by the outside aisle. Altar's always open if you'd like to stay and pray. If uh, coming to the front is difficult for you, we have bread and cups. We're happy to serve you in your seat. Just let the usher know as your row is released. I also have gluten-free wafers and cups here. And if you need those, just let me know as you come forward. We practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. It might be the first time you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with your heart open to Christ, with a desire in your heart to trust him, wherever your journey may take you,
then come. Believe. And be blessed.
faith we see the hand of God in the light of creation's grand design in the lives of those who prove his faithfulness who walk by faith and not by sight by faith our fathers Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.